you have your Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. You know, I, I tend to be uh, one who bristles at extra biblical, arbitrary rules and expectations. If something is taught by Scripture or clearly implied by Scripture, I want to follow it. But if something is an arbitrary cultural thing, I, I tend to kind of chafe a little bit. Um, case in point, when I moved to Kansas, I realized this is different than Southern California. Um, apparently, your worth as a man is somehow connected to the state of your lawn. Um, that took me a while to get my mind around that one. And then I started getting tired of all the looks my neighbors were giving me. Anyway, um, some people do their New Year's resolutions in January. Uh, I, uh, I, like to do, I like to do my New Year's resolutions in June. And after my last sermon in April on Revelation chapter 12 in which we did a course on hermeneutics as the first part of the sermon and then practically a 15-minute exposition of Revelation chapter 12, I was implored upon to go slower, to go slower. Please, Pastor Steve, go slower. And uh, I am not deaf to your cries. My resolution is to go slower. Uh, I was originally intending to cover all of chapter 13 this morning, but uh, last evening as I was working on the manuscript and uh, coming up on page 17 and still hadn't gotten out of point one, realized this needed to become a two-parter. So we are looking at the first half of Revelation 13 this morning, and next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at the second half of Revelation 13. Revelation 13 is a potentially confusing chapter. It has confused many. It does not need to be confusing, but it has confused many throughout church history, uh, myself included. Last fall, I was privileged to go on a mission trip to Uganda with Grant Ringler and several others here from GBC. It was a wonderful mission trip, and we got to work with Shannon and Danielle Hurley uh, in, in Uganda and in Shannon's ministry there. Sufficiency of Scripture's ministries, there are other missionary families that serve there, including another family who I was really impressed with, the, Stip the Stepanian family. The Stepanian family is a family of missionaries from uh, Central California. They come from Scott Art of Annis's Church in Central Valley, California, and uh, they host a seminary dinner for the seminary students that are studying there in Uganda once a week. And I was invited to come to that dinner. And at this dinner, the missionary leads the group in the reading of scripture, family devotions, but for his kids and also for all the uh, seminary students who are there present. And they just are working their way systematically chapter by chapter through scripture. And it just so happened that night that they invited me to come, they were reading Revelation 13. And when the missionary finished reading, uh, all eyes were on him. About He has about 10 kids, so his 10 kids, plus about 15 seminary students were looking at him. And then he turns and looks at me and says, Pastor Steve, would you explain Revelation 13 to everybody? And I was caught unawares. I pray this morning it goes more smoothly. This has been a blessing to study, uh, and it's not just fodder for academic interest. This is a passage of scripture like the rest of scripture, it's intended to be not only studied, but studied with a view towards obeying. All of scripture is profitable. 
All of scripture is profitable. The genealogies, the prophetic passages, all of it is profitable for the man of God, for the woman of God, for the servant of God, the slave of God, to take in, to be changed and transformed by, and then to obey. This chapter is no exception. This chapter is no exception. So if you would, please stand. We're going to read the entire chapter, Revelation 13, 1 through 18. Though our focus primarily for this morning is verses 1 through 10. Next week, we will look at verses 11 through 18. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous, blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has the understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. You may be seated. Revelation 13 is a potentially confusing and complicated chapter at first glance, but it doesn't need to be confusing. God wants us to understand his word. Paul writes to Timothy, study yourself, do your best to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The psalmist says in Psalm 19 that the word of God is clear. It makes wise the simple. God's truth is not obscured. It is perspicuous. What does perspicuous mean? Clear, able to be understood, able to be understood with the intent of obeying. God doesn't present his truth to us in a locked box and say, have fun, figure it out. No, he teaches us his truth. And yes, there are things that take effort and take study and take discipline. As Spurgeon said, scripture is like a gold mine that does not yield its treasures to the lazy man. You do need to exercise 
disciplined, spirit-empowered effort to study the word of God, but that does not mean that scripture is an unlockable box. This chapter is no exception. God gives us this chapter in order that we may obey what he has taught to his saints. As we said, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. We're not going to look at verses 11 through 18 too much this week. We're saving that for next week. So if you came to church this morning wondering whether or not uh, if your COVID vaccine was the mark of the beast, sorry, you got to wait seven days. Uh, don't worry. And I need to stick to my script or I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> Let's review the purpose of the book of Revelation. The purpose of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The word of God says this. The revelation or the uncovering, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. We are meant, as we said previously, we are meant to not just fill our minds with facts and data, but we're meant to fill our minds and our hearts with the truth of God's word so that we would understand with an intent to obey. That includes this chapter. It's the purpose of this whole book. Please do not look at Revelation as a box of riddles that you can't figure out. If you have the Holy Spirit, if you have been born again, if you have been transformed, if you have a heart that is not holding on to sin, but is surrendered to the authority and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then you have what you need to understand the truth of God's word. The psalmist prays in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the mind of the believer, to understand the truth of God's word, and not just mentally grasp it, but mentally grasp it with an intent to obey. What's the structure of the book of Revelation? We see this in Revelation 1.19. The structure is, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The things that John had seen was the vision of the glorified Christ and the commission to write to the churches. John saw the vision of Jesus standing among the lampstands. It represented Jesus' presence, his very active and real presence in his faithful local churches. And John also heard from the Lord Jesus specific messages to write to the seven churches of Asia Minor in his day. What was he to write? He was to write the things that are. Jesus had a message to each one of those churches, but also those that are to take place after this. That begins in chapter 4 and goes all the way through chapter 22. In chapter 4, we see a vision of heaven's throne room, the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son in chapters 4 and 5. And then the son receives a scroll which represents authority over the entire course of human history and authority over all of the cosmos, including planet Earth. And as the son, one by one, opens the seven seals, a judgment is poured out one after another after another upon all of creation. And the seventh seal gives way to the seven trumpets, and then trumpet after trumpet is blown, and more and more judgment is poured out on all of creation. We see this in chapters 8 and 9. Then, chapter 10 and 11, we see God's sovereignty over the wicked people of this world. 
And that, last time we were here in Revelation, we were in chapter 12, and John says, this is an interlude in between the trumpet judgments and what we're going to see in chapter 16, the bold judgments. There's an interlude in which John is shown a vision that encompasses the scope of spiritual warfare from the beginning of creation until the tribulation. In the first part of chapter 12, we see a summation of the evil one, Satan's, efforts to thwart the God of the Bible and his plans throughout all of Old Testament history. We saw this great sign that appeared in heaven, Revelation 12.1, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Sun, moon, 12 stars, that's reminiscent of Joseph's dream, of his father Jacob, who was also named Israel, sun, moon, and his 12 sons. This person, this woman, in the vision that John has shown, represents Israel. This is somebody who is precious to God and brings forth the Messiah. This isn't the church, because the church was brought forth by the Messiah. No, this is the people of Israel, God's covenant people. See, Satan has always tried to corrupt, pervert, and attack the people of Israel, because the people of Israel represent God's plan to bring about salvation to all the peoples of the earth. The Messiah was to come from Israel and did come from Israel. And from the beginning of the first chapters of Genesis, Satan was operating under the mindset that if he could corrupt, pervert, thwart God's plan to bring forth the Messiah, then he could attack God's plan for salvation to reach all of humanity. But God is so committed to his own glory and to the love of those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world that no matter what Satan tries to do, God defeats him at every step. That's what we see in chapter 12. Satan wars against God, tries to attack Israel, and he's thwarted over and over again. That fierce uh, battle that Satan wages upon God and God's people Israel continues into the tribulation. And we see here in Revelation 12, Revelation 12, verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. As we said last time, that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. Satan will seek to attack the people of God at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. If you're new to our study in Revelation, a lot of this may sound confusing. I'm sorry if you're parachuting right into the middle of this. In Daniel 9, we see that 70 weeks were decreed for the people of Israel. And Daniel's 70th week is what we call the time of the tribulation. At the beginning of that 70th week or a period of seven years, the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel. He seems to be Israel's friend. But in Daniel 9, it says that in the middle point of that week, that period of seven, he breaks the covenant. He breaks the treaty. He turns on Israel and seeks to destroy them. Revelation 12 shows us that God protects them and preserves them. Satan is defeated. He can't get to Israel. But look at verse 17, because this sets the context for our chapter today. Then the dragon, Satan, became furious with the woman, Israel, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who is that? John clarifies for us. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. During the last days, during the tribulation, there will be believers all over the world, both Jew and Gentile. Yes, a large number of Jewish believers who are ethnically Jewish but have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will be protected by God in a certain place referred to as the wilderness. But 
throughout the rest of the globe will be individuals, Jews and Gentiles, not protected in that same way. And they will be turning to Christ in repentance and faith as the gospel is preached by Jesus' faithful witnesses throughout the tribulation. And to do so, to do so, will mean a near automatic death sentence. As we're going to see from this chapter, to turn to Christ during the tribulation period is to incur the ire of the Antichrist and his minions. It's to, be, it's to get a target painted upon yourself, like a deer in hunting season. And the evil one, Satan, will work through one of his chief lieutenants, man that we're going to see here in chapter 13 called the Beast, to wage war, verse 17 of chapter 12, to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And that brings us this morning to chapter 13. Satan has been temporarily thwarted in his plans to attack the people of God, the covenant people of God, the nation of Israel. But he doesn't give up. He is ferocious in his attack. He hates God, and therefore he hates God's people. And that's nothing new to us. Jesus told us that would happen in John 15. He told his disciples in John 15, if they hated me, they will hate you. Paul writes to Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience persecution. I think we might even be seeing some elements of that even today. Now, I want to be very clear. All you need to do is read a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs or uh, a book that really changed my life when I was in high school. It was put out by Voice of the Martyrs called Jesus Freaks. I know it's a silly title, but it's a powerful book. And it's, a, it's, a, it's like an update of Fox's Book of Martyrs. People throughout the last 2,000 years of church history who have suffered and died for the cause of Jesus Christ. We actually have a few copies out in the Resource Center. We... Right now, modern day in the West, aren't experiencing anything like the persecution that the believers will experience during the tribulation or really are experiencing in other parts of the world right now or have experienced throughout church history. But it is starting to be more and more uncomfortable to be a Christian, is it not? That brings us to our study of chapter 13. Why spend time studying this passage? This passage depicts two methods by which the unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and a person we're going to look at next week called the false prophet, why the unholy trinity will terrorize God's people in the future, and in turn, it instructs us how to withstand the evil one in the present. We're going to talk about this a little bit later, but every word of God is meant to be applied. Every word of God is meant to be applied. Satan doesn't change his tactics. He has always sought to kill by means of persecution and deception. Persecution and deception. His tactics in the tribulation will be greater in intensity, but not different in style. Ever since the Garden of Eden, he has sought to deceive. And if deception doesn't work, then he turns to affliction. And those are his two main tools, affliction and deception. Affliction and deception. Think about the second and third soil from the parable of the sower. First soil, we, we know about the first soil. Unbelievers who hear the word of God and their hearts are just hard. They pay no attention to it. They just say, yeah, whatever, and they turn. That soil doesn't scare me that much. But as a pastor, it's when I read about the second and the third soil that what makes me concerned for those in pews. Because Satan uses both pressure and pleasure 
to draw away people. The affliction of the world, the tribulation of the world, or the idolatry, the pleasures of this world. He uses persecution. He uses deception. He uses pressure. He uses pleasure. And he does this to kill and destroy. Every soul that Satan can kill and destroy, he thinks is an attack upon the sovereignty and glory of God. But as we'll also see from Revelation 13, though Satan rages and though his lieutenants rage and though the nations rage, God stands undefeated. So first, for this week, we're going to look at the first method, the unholy trinity of the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They will attack God's people by means of ferocious persecution. The unholy trinity will attack God's people by means of ferocious persecution. Next week, we're going to look at blasphemous deception. But this week, ferocious persecution. Originally, I had had the desire to set aside Revelation and talk about um, current events, things that are happening in culture and society, particularly during this month. Uh, And I think you would not need to look very far to know what I'm referring to. But I decided, after getting good counsel from Pastor Bart, to stick to the text, which is always good. And as I was studying Revelation 13, I was shocked by how applicable, how applicable what's covered in here connects to what's going on today. The evil one operates through deception, through calling good evil and evil good, and he operates through persecution, turning up the heat, making there be a cost to be a faithful follower of Christ. How do we withstand? Well, studying his tactics in the future will give us insight for application in the present. He operates through the time of the tribulation through an individual called the beast. Here he's called the beast. In 1 John, he's referred to as the Antichrist. John writes, he says, Beloved, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Antichrist, singular. It's a specific individual he has in mind. And then John says, So also Antichrist have come. Other individuals, lesser Antichrists, men, False teachers cut from the same cloth, but different than the singular Antichrist. They have already come. And that's been true for the last 2,000 years. We have had lowercase Antichrists, false teachers, false leaders, people on a political level, people on a religious level, leading, leading people astray for 2,000 years. But there is one, this is true in the early church, there is one individual John refers to as the Antichrist, And Paul refers to him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as the man of lawlessness. Zechariah chapter 11 refers to him as the foolish shepherd. And Daniel 9 refers to him as the prince who is to come. He goes by several names throughout scripture, but he's the same individual. In chapter 13 of Revelation, he's called the beast rising out of the sea. So the beast, the antichrist, the foolish shepherd of Zechariah 11, the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and the prince who is to come from Daniel chapter 9 is the same individual. He's a human individual completely devoted to the worship of Satan and to the advancement of Satan's cause. He is a blasphemous individual. He's an individual who wields political power. He is the Antichrist. Understanding what he is like helps us understand Satan's tactics. The first description we see of him is the beast will be politically powerful. Verse 1, John says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on his heads. 
Now, the beast rising out of the sea. Why does he rise out of the sea? Because at the end of Daniel chap- uh, Revelation chapter 12, that is where the dragon stood. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And almost like an evil conjurer, Satan conjures out of the sea his chief lieutenant, the one through which he will operate during the time of the tribulation, his main servant during this time of world history yet to come, this beast. He has 10 horns and seven heads. Now, if you just looked at Revelation 13, you might be really confused. What are the 10 horns and seven heads? But remember, all of Scripture is connected. All of Scripture is connected. And other passages of Scripture clearly explain what the 10 horns and seven heads are. Daniel sees a picture of this beast in Daniel chapter 7. Listen to this, Daniel 7, 7 through 8. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth, beast, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." Okay, so let's figure out what these 10 horns are. And there's a connection here. Three of them were plucked up by the roots. Well, Daniel has this vision explained to him later in the same chapter by an angel. Daniel 7, 23 through 24. Daniel 7, 23 through 24. And thus he, the angel, said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, the kingdom of the beast, Ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. So out of the empire of the Antichrist, he has ten lesser kings, ten sub-kings, if you will. These are political rulers yet to come. They'll reign over ten different regions of the earth. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but the scripture clearly tells us in Daniel 7 they are political leaders. They are lesser kings. What about the seven heads? What about the seven heads? Well, again, Scripture explains Scripture. We see these seven heads mentioned in Revelation 17, 9 through 10. We see the beast again in Revelation 17, verses 9 through 10. It says this, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. You say, that's not helpful right away. Verse 10, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. That is helpful in understanding what these seven heads represent. There are many theories, but the best one seems to be that these are major world empires that are discussed in Scripture. There have been several world empires that have come and gone, but the major ones throughout Scripture include seven. First, you have the earliest that have impressed the people of God is the empire of Egypt. Egypt, later, major world empire that oppressed the people of God was Assyria, followed by Babylon, followed by Medo-Persia, followed by Greece. Those were five that at the time of the writing of Revelation had already fallen. The one that was present at the writing of the book of Revelation was the empire of Rome. And the one that is yet to come, and when it comes will only be for a little while, is the empire of the Antichrist, yet to come, and will last only three and a half years. Revelation 17.10 helps us understand the heads. Why is this important? Why is this important? It brings us to our next description of the beast. He's the summation of all human empires. He's the summation of all human empires. In verse 2, it says, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, its mouth like a lion's mouth. 
John describes the beast that he sees rising out of the sea, and it has elements of a lion, of a bear, and of a leopard. And you say, what is that? Well, if you've read the book of Daniel, you understand that Daniel gets visions of world empires that come and go. And how are they described? Lion, bear, leopard. Daniel 7, 1 through 8, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Lion, bear, leopard. Same as Revelation 13. Lion, bear, leopard. And comparing Daniel 7 to Daniel 2, remember the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his vision that had the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the middle part of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. The lion, the head of gold, is Babylon. The bear, which is the chest and arms of silver, is Persia, Medo-Persia. The leopard with the middle and thighs of bronze is Greece. And finally, the fourth beast, which is called a divided kingdom in Daniel 2, a divided kingdom. The legs are of iron, that's Rome, and the feet partly of iron and partly of clay is the empire of the Antichrist, which will be like Rome, but different from Rome. This beast is the summation and the representation and the culmination of all human empires that have seen to, that have sought, excuse me, have sought to wage war on God and God's people. And you say, wow, that's a lot of interesting things. What does that have to do with anything? Well, remember, what we study Sunday should affect us on Monday. And when I see a passage like this, I'm reminded of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the future empire of the Antichrist, and so many other empires that have come and gone have sought to defy the God of Scripture. They have looked at God's rules and God's law, and what God says is good, they've called evil. What God calls evil, they call good. They spit in the face of the God of the Bible, and they say, we want none of his rule, none of his authority. And God laughs. He holds them in derision, and he will conquer all of them. Egypt has come and gone. Assyria has come and gone. Babylon has come and gone. Rome has come and gone. And the empire of the Antichrist will come and will go, and God will remain unconquered. Here's where it affects you. Satan is still at work today. 1 Peter Peter 5, 8, he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He still operates through oppression and deception. He's there in your workplace where you're being pressured to be an ally towards a worldview that is ungodly, unbiblical, and defies the Lord. He's there when you're being told by your family and friends that you're too narrow-minded, you're too bigoted, you hold to a 2,000-year-old book. 
He's there trying to tempt, to slander, to accuse, to kill, destroy. His tactics haven't changed. But God remains undefeated. The only thing you need to worry about is whether or not you are loyal to Christ, faithful to Christ, submitting to Christ. Yes, there will be a cost to being a Christian. There's a cost being Christian in the days of the New Testament. There's going to be a cost for being a Christian in the time of the tribulation. There's a cost for being a Christian even now in this in-between time. Stay faithful unto death. The beast is politically powerful. He's the culmination of all human empires. He's empowered by Satan. Verse 2b. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 10 says that uh, the Antichrist describes the ministry of the Antichrist. And in verse 9, it says that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Just as Satan entered Judas, just as Satan entered Judas to, to control Judas and to cause Judas to betray the Lord Jesus Christ, so this man, the Antichrist, will be wholly devoted and given over to Satan to do his will. And through Satan, this Antichrist will work signs and wonders. He will lead people astray. He will present himself next as a false Christ. Verse 3, one of its heads of the beast seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now remember, those seven heads were the seven world empires that are mentioned in Scripture. Almost assuredly, this head that has the mortal wound and was healed is the seventh and final head, the empire of the Antichrist. And it will seem that there has been a type of resurrection. This Antichrist will have, it appears to be a mortal wound, a fatal wound, but somehow will resist it and remain alive, be resurrected in some way, whether it's a real resurrection or a, a fraudulent resurrection, we don't precisely know from this passage, but he will look like to have a false resurrection. That makes sense because he's presenting himself as a false Christ. We saw that in Revelation 6, 1 through 2. This Antichrist is the one who is the first horseman of the apocalypse, the very first judgment at the beginning of the tribulation. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So you have this person at the very beginning of the tribulation, a form of judgment, who comes out as a rider on a white horse. So he's pretending to copy the Lord Jesus Christ, as we will see in Revelation 19, the one true rider on the white horse. The Antichrist seeks to be a substitute, a fraudulent Christ, and he conquers. He has a bow, but no arrows. He conquers the entire world without military might. He's the foolish shepherd of Zechariah 11. We don't have time to go into it, but look at Zechariah 11:15 through 17. God says, behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. That's another prophecy of the Antichrist. He's not a true and genuine shepherd like the Lord Jesus. He's a false and foolish shepherd. Next, in Revelation 13, verse 4, we see that the beast will be a leader of satanic idolatry. Verse 4 says, They worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? When Jesus Christ lived on earth, he was completely and totally devoted to the Father's glory. That's why he cleared out the temple at the beginning and at the end of this ministry. He was devoted to the Father's glory. Everything Christ did, he did to glorify the Father. Jesus also received worship for himself. If anybody else did that in all of history, it would be blasphemous. But Christ multiple times 
both before and after his resurrection, receives worship and never offers any word of protestation. So we understand that Jesus is both devoted to God the Father's glory and Jesus himself as God the Son also receives glory. And in a perverse twisting, this Antichrist, this fake Messiah, will both direct worship to Satan and receive worship himself. He'll be a leader in worldwide satanic idolatry. Worldwide satanic idolatry. Look at this phrase here. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? What does that sound like? It sounds like the praise of Israel in Exodus 15 after they came across the Red Sea and uh, over dry land and they were delivered from the Egyptians. They said, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? And look here, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Satanic idolatry. The beast will be permitted to reign for a determined amount of time. We see this verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. You know, something encouraging that happens four times in this chapter, look at this. Verse 5, was allowed. Verse 7, was allowed. Uh, Verse 14, referring to the false prophet, is allowed. Verse 15, referring to the false prophet, was allowed. In the midst of all of this, those Satan rages, though the Antichrist rages, though the false prophet will seek to deceive Who is governing all things? The one who is permitting them. God. At no time in any of this horrific events is God not on the throne. There are certain parameters. There is is just as Job said about the sea, that God says to the sea, thus far you will go and no further. So too, here in the tribulation, God sets parameters and Satan can only go as far as God lets him. We see here there's a, a time limit, 42 months That's a a phrase that's echoed. We've gone over this several times before. We don't have time to do it now, but many times, both Daniel and Revelation, you have 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, half a times. Those phrases are used interchangeably so that we know that what's in focus here is a period of seven years, specifically the latter half of the tribulation, a period of three and a half years. That's indisputable. Next, next, we see not only will the beast be permitted to reign for a term amount of time, he'll be a reviler of all that is holy. Verse 6, he opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. This was prophesied in Daniel 7, 25. He shall speak words against the Most High. Next, the beast will be a persecutor of those who love God. Verse 7, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Daniel 7, 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Next, we see that the beast will be completely dominant over all of planet Earth. Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Again, in Daniel 7, 25, he shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand. The beast will seek to control the events of world history and the principles that govern world history. And for a short time, he'll actually have authority given into his hand. They shall be given into his hand, Daniel 7, 25, for a time, times, and half a time. What we're going to see later in our study of Revelation is that a time will come when his time is up and Christ will defeat him. But for this point in Revelation 13, he seems victorious. We see that in verse 8. The beast will receive worship from unbelievers all over the world and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name who has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. Satan loves to lead people to hell through deception and oppression, oppression and deception. And his tactics will be no different in style, just different in ferocity during the time of the tribulation. What do we do? 
What do we do in response to such evil tactics? Not just in the future, but now. How do you respond now when there's a cost to being a Christian? How do you press on and persevere when it's getting increasingly uncomfortable to stay faithful to Christ in the public square? Well, that's our final point for this morning, the believer's response. Press on and persevere until the very end. Verses 9 through 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Three sub-points of application. We'll do these very quickly. First, heed God's warnings beforehand. Be in the word. Study the word. Know the word. Not taking in God's word, not hiding it in your heart so that you might not sin against God is like going into battle with no bullets in your gun, with no sword in your sheath, just running in there like a crazy person, setting yourself up for destruction. Take God's word in every day. My college pastor used to say, is this the Read Your Bible More sermon? Yes, it is. Every sermon is the Read Your Bible More sermon. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. This brings up the question of application. How do we apply a passage like this? It's helpful to remember, Scripture was not written to you, but it was written for you. What do I mean by that? Philippians was written to the Philippians. Galatians was written to the Galatians. First and Second Kings were written to the nation of Israel. First and Second Chronicles were written to the nation of Judah. There was a specific intended recipient in time and history that received each book to address particular issues that were going on. The Bible is not a systematic theology book. It's a collection of God-inspired letters written to real people in real time and real places in history to address specific issues. And yet, because this book is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, it is still applicable 2,000 years later to you and me today. It was not written to you, but it was written for you. Let me give you a short example. At the end of Philippians, you have two women who are fighting, Yodia and Syntyche. Now, none of you are Yodia, none of you are Syntyche. They lived and died over, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. But you still are called to pursue and persevere unity and fellowship within the church, are you not? Jeremiah 29, 11. You see this verse on half the stuff sold at Hobby Lobby, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? That was written to Jews in the exile, suffering under Babylon. And yet it's still applicable to you today. But if you are a believer in God, that he has plans for you. You can still apply the scripture that was written to people in times past. Well, here, here, we can apply this scripture that's written to believers in the future. Here, you can apply the scripture written to believers in the future. So first, heed God's warnings beforehand. Second, rest in God's sovereignty over one's life and one's death. Rest in God's sovereignty over one's life and one's death. You say, where do you get that? Look at verse 10. If anyone is to be captive... To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Now, this is preceded by a call to hear. He who has an ear. So that's talking about believers. Unbelievers are not spiritually sensitive. Believers, listen. What are you listening to? This poetic statement right here in the first part of chapter 10. And then it's referred to, we're going to get this in a minute, that this is a call. This, what was just said, is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What we see in verse 10 seems bleak, doesn't it? If anyone must be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone must be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. I want you to understand, this is not a, decry of, uh, not a cry of fatalism. This is not just, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. No, this is, this is the same spirit that we see in Daniel chapter 3, 
with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen to this. Nebuchadnezzar says to them, he says, now if you are ready, Daniel 3, verse 15, now if you are ready, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when you hear the sound of the, the horn, this is all the music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This isn't fatalism. This is trust. God is sovereign over my life. He's sovereign over my death. He can preserve me in the fiery furnace, or he can use the fiery furnace as the means by which he takes me home to be with him. Because Paul said the same thing in 2 Timothy 4, did he not? Paul, in a filthy, stinking Roman prison, knows that his death is imminent. His death is going to happen. In just a few moments, his head is going to be severed by a Roman executioner's sword. What does he say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 18? The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Daniel 3, 2 Timothy 4, Revelation 13, verse 10. Rest in God's sovereignty over your life and over your death. And if faithfulness to Christ brings you suffering, brings you martyrdom, that's okay. Rest in God's goodness. What do you do in the meantime? Last part of verse 10. Press on and persevere. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Friends, cling to Christ no matter what. Cling to Christ no matter what. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What is endurance? It's the Greek word hupomone. It means to remain under, to remain under. No matter what hits come your way, you press on, you persevere. You say, Pastor, I'm weak. Me too. I can't do that on my own. I can't do that on my own. None of us can endure by ourselves. That's why it says, here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What's the victory that overcomes the world? What does First John tell us? Our faith. How do we endure? How do we persevere? By trusting in one who is stronger than we are. By trusting in one who is greater than we are. We're about to sing, Christ will be my hideaway. Now, yes, what we're talking about here in Revelation 13 is in the future. And I believe that none of us who trust in Christ now will be present during this time. But Satan still wages war. He still prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you're to apply this passage now. You're to endure and have faith. Cling to Christ. Trust in him. Trust in the one who died and for your sake was raised, who is there saying, I will be with you. I will go with you through the fire. I will go with you through the flood. I will carry you. I will be with you no matter what comes your way. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He goes with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And he'll bring us home to live with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text in Revelation 13. So much to study. I pray, Lord, that we'd be faithful to apply it and to obey it and that, that we would cling to you, though Satan may rage. For any here who have not yet repented of their sin and trusted in you, the one who died and was raised for them, I pray that they would do so today and not presume upon your grace. Lord, but they would run to you at a time that you may be found. Lord, help us to rest in the fact that you are our hideaway. We pray this in your name. Amen.